The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. God, I pray for me uh, this morning. God, I... um, I come humbly under your word. Your word, is, your word is, is awesome, God. Your word is inspired. It is your word. So God, help me to be faithful. Um, and if anything come out of my mouth that not be of you, let it fall to the ground, God. Let it fall on deaf ears. But if it be your words, God, and be an exhortation that you want for us out of this passage, God, let it encourage our hearts, strengthen us, and motivate us to love you and worship you in the way we ought to. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's remind ourselves here of the context in 1 John. It's been a while since we were here. The reason why John is, is writing. John is pastoring here. He is pastoring. John is a pastor. The Apostle John is not a seminary professor. Okay, In this letter, he's not giving a lecture. He's not a theology nerd with a blog and an axe to grind, arguing about really weird stuff and obscure stuff in the scripture. He's not trying to show us how smart he is. He's not writing to impress anyone. He's not talking about theology for theology's sake. He is pastoring. And I need to remind you that it is a very, very tough season for John and for his church. He is pastoring a church that is hurting and confused because of a church split due to theological error. His people are needing clarity in regards to some theological issues. There's a lot of false teaching floating around. A lot of conversations happening. They're trying to make sense of all of this. His people are needing clarity concerning some of the the ethical and moral, some of the real life implications of some of these false teachings. His people need help making sense of watching some of their dear friends buy into this teaching and leave the church. That can be very, very confusing. People that you know, people that you love, people that you have relationship with. There's a big split in the church. One side goes one way and the other, guy, the other side stays. That's confusing. That's hard. How do, we, how do we make sense of this? John is helping his people do this. His people are needing encouragement to continue in Christ, to remain, to abide, to not give up trusting and holding on to the true Jesus and on to the one gospel that God has given us. His people are needing to see also how the truth of Christ and the truth of this one gospel, how that connects to their daily lives. And this is how we ought to read this letter. We ought to see a very tender and dear and concerned and passionate heart of a pastor. This is how we ought to read our text. This is how we ought to view our passage and and the entire letter and specifically our text today. It's written with a pastoral heart. So in our text today, John has some very positive and emphatic statements, some very positive and emphatic statements, some very bold statements concerning a few things. The first is this, concerning the second coming of Christ. He's going to say some very bold, very positive, very, very emphatic things about the second coming of Christ. And also some positive statements and emphatic statements and bold statements about their position in Christ, who they are in Christ And also for what those two truths mean for our internal heart struggle to fight sin daily and to live holy lives and to live a life that's pleasing to God. 
And so I love it. John just doesn't do theology for theology's sake. He, he, he's pastoring, he's, he's clarifying, and he's also taking those truths and he's connecting them to life. What this truth means for right now for me. And this is what I appreciate about John. The first thing we see from John in our passage today is John wants us. He wants the church. He wants his church. He wants Bethel Church Cedar Lake to have confidence. Confidence right now. Confidence right now. Look at what he says. Beloved, we are God's children now. You see that in verse 2, 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And I know we already touched on this, but it's worth mentioning again. The wonder, the wonder of God's love and our adoption there in 3.1. You see that there? 3.1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And then in verse 2, he tells us, beloved, we are God's children now. It's worth mentioning again. It's worth mentioning every week. By virtue of God's adoptive love to all of those who believe in his son, we are already children of God. God's adoption of us is an astonishing truth, and it is worthy of our ongoing astonishment. And really, we saw this last time. If God would have, would have stopped at the forgiveness of our sins and a declaration of our righteousness justified in Christ, that would have been infinitely more than we deserve. If we were merely to be made like the angels and welcomed as, as servants, those who do God's bidding, that would give us cause for eternal praise. But God didn't stop there. He adopted us. He freely welcomed us into his family where he loves us as his own children. And in John 13, Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants, I call you friends. We are God's friends. For a servant knows not what his master is doing, but I call you friends, for you know me and you know what I'm about. We are children. God is not our judge. He is our father. And he cares for us and loves us as his own children, as if we were his own. And the work of Christ is so to make sinners into children. God has come to die for orphan rebels so that he might turn them into sons and be a father to them. And that ought to just, that ought to just encourage your heart this morning. And this is John's intention. He wants to encourage the heart of this church that is struggling. This is the kind of love in verse 1 that he wants us to see, that he wants us to behold. And he reminds us that we are God's children now. He doesn't say we might be. He doesn't say we could be. He doesn't say we should be. He doesn't say we can be. He doesn't say we ought to be. He doesn't say we're almost there. No, we are. John wants us to be confident in our position. He wants us to know this is what John's doing. He wants to bring confidence to the church, confidence in Christ. We are forgiven of sins past, present, and future. We are legally and permanently declared righteous, holy, blameless in his sight. We are adopted as sons, freely welcomed into a relationship with God by his grace. We are God's children now. John is saying, know it, believe it, live in it, bank on it, be confident. This is John's emphasis. And the reason I feel a, a heart to, to point that out and really to draw that out of the text is because with all of John's language um, in this letter about holiness, about righteousness, about purity, and about obedience as, as the proof of eternal life, as the proof of abiding in Christ. And there's more of that in First John. There's more of that to come even in our text today. I felt it important to once again point out that John never 
points to the fruit of obedience or the fruit of righteousness in our lives as the thing that saves or the thing that brings us confidence. Christ is our confidence, friends, and his declaration of us. Everything else is fruit. Everything else is proof. Everything else is a a, a result of God's grace in our lives. Our confidence comes from Christ and the work that he has done, the declaration that he has made in our lives. Righteous children, that's a word from him to us. Not something we've earned, but something he has said of us. That's our identity. It's who we are. And in that, because of Christ, and in that is our confidence. Practicing righteousness, purity, and obedience are always presented by John as proof that God, by his grace, has made us alive. He's made us alive. That our hearts are alive. That our hearts are no longer hearts of stone, but that they beat and they're alive towards the things of God. You see that in verse 229. It's proof that you've been born of him and you abide in him. John is consistent to always show us that Christ and Christ's work is our confidence. And faith, faith and belief and abiding in Christ, continuing in that belief, that is that thing that connects us to the person and work of Christ. It connects us personally to that work. And if that is true of you, John is saying, what will take place, all this fruit, all this righteousness and this obedience. So I think like on the front end, we need to clarify that. Because I don't want us to run again into another section on maybe holy living or righteousness or obedience. And somehow we might get askew thinking that somehow God's love for me is based upon my performance. Or somehow my salvation or my future or my confidence in the coming of Christ is somehow based upon something that I need to do. But it's a work that he does in me and continues to do in me. So John says this is who we are now. He wants them to have confidence. We are God's children now. Have confidence. He now moves on from who we are now to what we will be. Who we are now to what we will be when Christ comes back. And he wants us to have confidence on that day as well. Look at what John says next in verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared or has not yet been manifest. We've not seen it. It hasn't taken place yet. But we know That when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. It's very clear again. Notice the language here. It's very clear. He wants those in his church to live in this confidence that's only found in Christ. Notice the language, verse 2 and following. Notice all the positive statements here. And notice the force behind these statements. Look at the text. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You see that? There's no, there's, there's no like question marks here. Is there a question mark at the end of any of these verses? No. It's, it's periods. It's exclamation marks. This is, this is confidence here. He's wanting to pass on. Notice this confident, forceful language. John is pastoring them. He's pastoring us by showing us that we can have confidence and know for sure, A, who we are in Christ, and B, that we will one day, what we will be one day when he comes back. I want you to notice that word hope there in verse 3. You see that word hope there in verse 3? It's the only time that word shows up in in this letter. It's the only time John uses this word hope. 
John uses this word hope to describe how we ought to personally connect with these emphatic, bold truths. These realities that John is laying out for us. John connects the word hope to all those positive, confident phrases. You see that? He connects that word hope to all of those positive, bold, emphatic statements in verse 2. You see that? So let's do this. Because of that, because of that point right there, let's define hope and then we'll flesh it out. We could define hope as this. It means this. Confident expectation. Confident expectation. Okay, let's flesh that out. Well, first, let me tell you why I define it that way. I define it that way and I take care to do that because I hear that word hope all the time. And you guys use hope all the time. We use this word. It's a part of our regular vocabulary. I hear and use that word myself all the time. And confident expectation is not the idea behind my use of that word. Nor is it the idea behind the use of the word when I hear it from others. Here's how we use the word hope. We usually connect that word to something that is yet to happen. And an uncertainty about the thing that is yet to happen. And the positive result I am desiring regarding the thing that is yet to happen. Do you see that? This is how we use hope. Something that's yet to happen. I'm uncertain about the thing that's yet to happen. And the positive result I'm hoping in regarding the thing that is yet to happen. So we'll say things like this. I hope we don't owe on our taxes this year. Right? I don't know. I might. I might not. Right? Something that's yet to happen, but I'm uncertain. But I want positive to happen. Right? I hope we don't owe on our taxes this year. I hope this test result comes back negative. I hope Derrick Rose comes back for the playoffs. I hope it stops raining. And it's so good to see that round, blazing orange thing in the sky this morning instead of rain. I hope my kindergartner gets a good teacher next year. I hope they catch that suspect in Boston. I hope the weather breaks soon. I hope I get the job. Do you see that? This is how we use hope. We use it rightly in regards to something that is yet to happen, but we use it wrongly when we imply uncertainty concerning the thing that is yet to happen. And this is not how the scriptures use the word hope. This is not the idea behind the biblical word hope. Hope in scripture refers to something in the future that is yet to happen, but it is always associated with the confidence, certainty, truth, promise, and the reality of the thing that is yet to happen. Do you see that here? Who... Everyone who thus hopes, who thus hopes, who thus has a confident expectation of the return of Christ. This is how John is using this word. Hope is connected to knowing. Hope is connected to truth. Hope is connected to confidence. Hope is connected to certainty. Hope is connected to future reality. Hope is connected to Christ and there is certainty and confidence in Christ. So when you see that word, Know that the, the, the writers of the Bible don't use that word like you and I use that word. <clears throat> John is telling us that we are those who hope like this. We don't hope in the Powerball and we don't hope in point guards. We hope in Christ. And Christ is sure and Christ is for sure coming again. Amen. And this is our hope. This is our hope. And really, this is the big point he's making in this section. If you go back up to verse uh, 28 in chapter 2, we read this. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. When you read that word abide in verse 28, don't think your personal performance. 
Do not think your personal performance. Think of a continuation in your trust and hope in the person and finished work of Christ. It's not your personal performance. It's your continuation of believing and connecting and trusting in Christ. John has consistently used that word to describe a continuation in the embrace, belief, trust, faith in the truth of Christ's person and his performance, not ours. Abiding is a remaining in belief, a remaining in trust, a remaining in embrace, a remaining in hope. And especially he uses that in light of those who went out from us. We remember that passage and did not continue with us. They didn't abide and it became plain that they were not of us. And he uses that and talks about that a little bit earlier on in chapter 2. Abide means to continue in belief, to continue in trust, to continue in faith. And faith and abiding and belief and trust is the thing that connects us. It connects us. It unites us to Christ and his work and his person who is our confidence. And so if your trust, friend, if you're here and your trust and your confidence and you are not trusting in anything else except Christ and him alone, you have no fear. You have no reason to fear, I should say. On this day or on that day. No reason to fear on this day or on that day. And what a day that'll be. What a day that'll be. We just got done singing about it. The return of Christ. The second coming. This is the hope of the church. I can't wait. And this is where John goes now. He points us to that day when Christ comes back. And he shows us what that means for us. That day when we will be changed to be like him then. Look at what John says. What we will be has not yet appeared. We don't, we, we don't see it. It's not here now. It's not been manifest. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Think of a time you saw a famous person. Think of a time you saw someone worthy of note. And everybody's got a story about seeing a famous person. Some have stories of meeting a famous person. The one I like to tell is when I met uh, Jerry from NBC's Parks and Recreation. Um, I don't know if you guys watched that show. He was at a DSW in Maryville buying a pair of rock ports. I'm like, you're a movie star, dude. What are you shopping at DSW for? Right around Christmas time. And I was like, are you? And he's like, I am. And I'm like, can I get a picture? And he's like, yeah, you can. He was really, really cool. Some of you are like, what is this show he's talking of? I don't know. I met Jerry from Parks and Rec, and it was awesome. I should have put the picture up here. But most of us don't really have the guts to actually go up to the famous person that we see and introduce ourselves and and talk to them. And even if we do, something stupid usually comes out of our mouth. Just ask our very own Josh Verbish about the time you met Devin Hester. Or when you get a chance, ask Steve DeWitt about the time you met John MacArthur. That's a really great story. So for most of us, it's just enough just to kind of like walk over by them, right? We kind of walk over by them, so we're kind of by, right? We're, we're like kind of there. We're like looking at them. We get our phone out of our pocket, and we're kind of sneaking a pic, right? So that we can have a story to tell a little bit later on. We just go, and, 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 and it's enough for us just to just be by them, be close to them, sneak a pic, post it to Facebook. And we just go and brag that we saw so-and-so. We stood next to them, and maybe we'll show, we'll have a picture to show off. We see these famous people, we leave with nothing more than a cool story. John says in our text today that when we see Jesus at his second coming, our entire person will be changed to be made like him forever. All these supposed famous people, you see them, you got a cool story. 
John says the day we see Jesus, our entire person is going to be completely transformed to be like him forever. And that's powerful when we see him as he is. And this is the eager expectation for the believer, the return of Christ. This is our confident expectation. The scriptures speak to this. The return of Christ is mentioned 318 times in the 260 chapters of the New Testament. It is mentioned in every book with more than one chapter except Galatians. 318 times in 260 chapters. And just the weight, just the biblical weight uh, that the scriptures give to the return of Christ, we see that this is the hope and anticipation for the church. And the entire, excuse me, the entire Bible ends with these words, even so, come Lord Jesus. This is our hope. This is our anticipation. This is the thing that we are waiting for. This is the thing that we are eagerly expecting and longing for. And so John tells us here that we will see Christ as he is. We will see him as he is, not as he was, not in the weakness of his earthly ministry, not in the humility of his time here on earth, not in the weakness of his sufferings and crucifixions, and certainly not in the weakness of his death. We will not see him or his glory cloaked as, as it was during his earthly ministry when God walked around us and walked among us as just your average Jewish Joe at that time. Thousands of people saw Christ while he walked on earth, and that vision of Christ didn't change them. They weren't changed by that vision, just seeing him. Jesus' glory was hidden. His glory remained hidden until he ascended into heaven. What is he like now? What is he like now? What is it about Christ now that when we see him, we're going to be changed to be like him? Well, really to piggyback on the Apostle John and some other words that he wrote about Christ, really describing Christ as he is now. Look at what John said in the first chapter of Revelation 1. It's on the screen for you. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is Jesus now. This is Jesus in the fullness of of his excellence, in the fullness of his glory. This is the vision of Jesus that causes every knee to bow and confess with tongue that Jesus is Lord. This is the vision of Christ that John is talking about here in chapter 3. And what's going to happen when we see him as he is, when he comes and we see him as he is, and that's going to happen, friend, right? That's not like, that's not like myth. That's not like just kind of, just like theology piece. That's reality. He's coming, We see him as he is. What's going to happen? Well, really, there's a lot of things that are going to happen on that day. But John here talks about what that means for us, what it means for us as we see him when Christ appears. John says that just the sight, just the mere sight of Jesus himself is going to do something to us. It's going to do something to our body, something radical to our physical, our whole entire person, something to our personhood. And on that day, we'll be transformed. We'll be transformed to be like him because we shall see him the way he is. John here is talking about a a radical transformation that's going to take place in those who hope 
in Christ, a physical transformation, a bodily renewal, a renewal that is whole, that is complete. This includes our entire selves. We're going to be changed just by the mere sight of Christ. Paul clarifies for us in Philippians 3, says this, God will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. And I find comfort in the fact that John, I think in those words where he says, what we are when he says, beloved, we're God's children now and what we will be is not yet appeared. He's almost saying like, I don't really know all the details of this because what we will be, it's not really known. It's not here. It's not manifest. I don't know all the specifics, but I know this, that when he comes back and we see him in his glory, we're going to be changed to be just like him. And Paul tells us that God on that day is going to transform our lowly bodies. How's that for an encouraging word this morning, right? What John wants to encourage, Paul seems to want to kind of break us down. Your bodies are lowly. Go take that and tweet that and underline that. But our lowly bodies will be transformed to be like his glorious body. So how does this happen? How does this happen? I I mean, I don't know, but here's here's a stab at it. Jesus came in a body. Jesus died in a body. And that same body got up and walked out of a tomb after being dead three days. The body that rose was different. It was new. Not new as in other, new as in renewed. It was the same body that died. It was a a resurrected body. Some people call it a, a glorified body. And Jesus ascended into heaven in this renewed, glorified body. And Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father in this renewed, glorified body. And Jesus currently seated there, interceding, mediating on our behalf in this renewed, glorified body. And now John adds to this narrative to say that when Jesus appears again, he's already appeared once, when he appears again, we too will be changed to have a body just like his. Just like his. This is the testimony of the scriptures. That Jesus is coming back, and when he comes back, we shall see him as he is and be changed like him. Here's how the ESV study Bible puts it, uh, commenting on this passage here in 1 John 3. What we will be means having glorified bodies that will never be sick or grow old or die, being completely without sin. We have no idea what that's like. No one like this has yet appeared on earth except Christ himself after his resurrection. We shall be like him. In eternity, Christians will be morally without sin, intellectually without falsehood or error, physically without weakness or imperfections, and filled continually with the Holy Spirit. That sounds awesome to me. And I can't wait for that. I can't wait for that. And just a side note there, if you don't have the ESV study Bible, and you're not digging into the scriptures and being encouraged in God's word, get a copy of that. Dig in. Go deep. End of side note. There's another New Testament word that helps us understand this, and it's this word first fruits that helps us understand what this body is going to be like. First Corinthians 15, 20 tells us this, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He calls Christ's resurrection body, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That term first fruits was used to prefer, refer to the first sample. It's an agricultural term. It was used to refer to a first sample of a ripened agricultural crop. The first sample indicated, the first sample from that ripened crop indicated the nature and the quality of the rest of the crop. Christ's resurrection body is for us a first sample. It is a foretaste of what the bodies of believers will be like when we see him as he is. 
And here we see the purpose, friends. We see the purpose to which Christ came to restore the image of God in man. Jesus didn't come just to punch your ticket to heaven, just to save your soul, to float around in angel baby diapers and shoot arrows and clouds floating around in obscure kind of eternity someday. No, he came to change everything, to renew and restore the body that you're living in right now. Not just save you, but make you new. And that's going to be made known to us. We're going to see that. We're going to be transformed in this way when he comes back. To restore the image of God in man. The image of God in man was marred by sin. Mankind was separated from God and lost. The work of Christ is to bring us back to God. And to one day completely be restored to the image of Christ. This is the fullness of our salvation. Salvation, forgiveness of sins, reconciliation to God right now, adoption, justification. But one day, all this, this, or this stuff that we see that's marred by sin, one day too, all the dross of impurity is going to be removed and we're going to be pure. And we're going to be renewed and restored back to glory. And not just us. We don't really have time to get into this, but Christ's return means a cosmic renewal. A cosmic renewal. He's going to make all things new and rid the world of all the effects of sin. Everything's going to change. And again, John is here. He's pastoring these people. For a church that is struggling, he tells them, what you will be on that day has not yet been seen, but when he comes, we will see his face. We will be changed in an instant, and this struggle will be over. And that is encouraging words for us as Christians who are grinding it out, right? That is encouraging words for us who are just struggling right now, who are just grinding, who are suffering from the effects of the fall. We know this pain all too well. We're struggling with the effects of shame and guilt because of our own sin. We're struggling with the effects of sin as others around us don't love us as they should, but mistreat us and unjustly treat us. We're struggling with the effects of the fall as our bodies are decaying and, and cancer and sickness and, and difficulty in this world. We're struggling with the effects of seeing Boston and Texas and, and everything that's going on and murders in Chicago. We just see all of this. We're just, we're just struggling right now. And John's saying one day that's all going to be over. It's all going to be over. For when he comes, we're going to see him as he is and you're going to be changed to be like him. John's encouraging them with the reality of this truth. And see this. I think oftentimes we associate the second coming of Christ with arguing, charts, Weird pictures of beasts, weird televangelists, right? It's like every time you mention Revelation or the second coming of Christ, it's like all this weird stuff pops up in your head, like barcodes on your forehead and computer chips under your hand. And we just all this kind of like confusion and arguing and charts. And it's like the Bible doesn't present it in that way. You know what, you know what the words that are often associated with the coming of Christ? Here are the words. Encouragement. Comfort confidence, eagerness, expecting, change. These are the words that are associated with the coming of Christ, right? Not weird theology blogs that get into goofy stuff, right? Let's argue about it, get our charts out. We get all wrapped up in like the details rather than the reality of the truth that Christ is coming back. And that means something for us. And that means encouragement for us who are grinding it out. And, and this is why it's so important to see this, this letter through the lens of John as a pastor. He's trying to encourage these people. He's trying to encourage them. 
He's trying to encourage us. Christ is coming back, Christian. Christ is coming back, one who hopes in him. And you're going to be changed on that day. And all your struggle and all your fight and all your strife with this world and with sin and with the devil, it's all going to be over. It's all going to be over. It's all going to be over. This is the beauty of the work of Christ, to save us to the uttermost. This is also the desire for the one who trusts in Christ, to one day be completely rid of sin. And like Christ, I want that. I long for that. The person who trusts in Christ, I want that. I long for that in my life. And I know those of you who are here long for that too. You can't wait for that day. You can't wait for that day to be completely rid of sin and be like Christ. This is our confident expectation. This is our great anticipation to be like him. And because this is the case, okay, John's building an argument here. Because this is the case, because it is the case that this is our hope, because it is the case that this is our confident expectation, because it is the case that we can't wait for that day to be changed like him, to be completely rid of sin and struggle and strife, because that is the case, John now moves into showing us how that eager future expectation for the return of Christ will necessarily, most definitely, translate into a present desire to live holy lives. Change to be like him then, changing to be like him now. Look at what he says in verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes, everyone who hopes like that, everyone who hopes in Christ and for Christ for that day, purifies himself as he is pure. I love this. John is showing us here that hope is dynamic. Hope is dynamic. Trusting is dynamic. Belief is dynamic in the lives of those who do trust in Christ. And although hope anticipates something in the future, although hope anticipates something that is coming, it affects us now. Although hope looks forward to then, it changes us right now. Hope in a future change means this for John, a desire for change right now. Hope in a future change translates into a desire for change right now. And John's argument is basically this. If you truly long for Christ to appear so that you will be for the first time completely rid of your sin struggle and to be transformed to be completely like him in the future, that will most certainly translate into a longing for that kind of transformation right now. Do you see that? If you long to be transformed on that day, if that is your hope, if that is your confidence, if that is the day that you are waiting for to be transformed, to be like him, that will translate into a desire to be transformed on this day, today, Sunday, April 21st. You see that? Hope, hope is translated into the reality of our lives. Hope in a future change means a desire for change right now. If I long for complete purity in the future, I will long for purity in the present. You see that? If I long for purity in the future, to be made like Christ, that means I'm long for purity right now. If I long for that day to be made pure, I will long in this day to be pure. If I eagerly anticipate being like him then, I will, I will be eager to be like him now. It is spiritual schizophrenia to say that you look forward to Christ coming back so that you can be rid of sin 
and yet love sin and live in sin until he comes back. That is crazy talk. And that is, that is, that is, that's a breakdown. That's a breakdown in thinking right there. If on one hand I say, I can't wait for Jesus to come back to be completely rid of sin because I hate sin. I want to be rid of it. But yet on the other hand, I live for sin now and I love sin. That's spiritual schizophrenia. That's crazy. That doesn't make sense at all. If you really love sin, you're not going to long for Christ to come back because that means an end of sin, right? That means an end to the things you love. That means an end to the things that you desire. This is not the case for those who are genuine in Christ. We long to be changed on that day. We long to be pure on that day. We long for Christ come back to come back to transform us. And we long to be changed today. We long for transformation in this day. We long for purity in this day. I can't wait for Jesus to come back so I'll be rid of sin. I think in the meantime, while I wait for him, I'll live in as much of it as I can. That's like saying I can't wait for the Cubs to win the World Series. In the meantime, I'm going to root for the Sox and the Cardinals. That's crazy. Now, the Cubs are never going to win the World Series, so the, it, it breaks down. The illustration breaks down. You see that, all right? It, it only, the illustrations only go so far. <clears throat> it's been said that in hell, it's been said that in hell, God gives to you everything you wanted in this life. If you don't want God here, he gives you that for all eternity. If you don't want righteousness now, he gives you unrighteousness for all eternity. If you don't want a holy life now, he gives you an unholy life for all eternity. So that, in a sense, everyone gets in heaven and hell, everyone gets what they really, truly wanted here, deep down in the core of their hearts, for eternity. J.I. Packer said that all receive what they actually desired in this life, either to be with God forever, worshiping him, or without God forever, worshiping themselves. If you truly, truly desire God, which is the fruit of us being born of him. Again, coming back to this, this is why we need to see fruit, fruit, okay? Fruit of God's grace. Not the desire saves us. The desire is the fruit. If we truly, truly have been born of him, our desire is going to be for him. Our desire is going to be to be rid of sin. And that day is a hope and an anticipation that we long for. And we will have that for all eternity. And John is pressing you guys. John is pressing those who say they know Christ. John is pressing those who say they they know Christ, love him and trust in him, but yearn for unrighteousness in this life. And John is saying it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. If you long for his returning, long to be changed then, you will long to be changed right now. John is showing us that our future hope translates to our desires now. Those who can't wait to see Jesus don't want to live like children of the devil. They are children of God. They don't want to sin. They don't delight in it. They want purity. Deep down in their hearts, they've been made alive by God. They want to love God and not sin. This has been the consistent argument in John's letter for us. Are children of God perfect? No. Is there a passion for purity in head, heart, and hands? Absolutely. Absolutely. Are we perfect? Are we without sin? Absolutely no. Do we hate that internal struggle? Yes. Yes. Do we hate sin and all of its effects? Yes. Absolutely. Those who make the practice of sin, those who live in a lifestyle of sin, John would seriously question 
you saying that you look forward to seeing Jesus on that day, he would also seriously question if you truly know Jesus on this day. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this about our text here in, in verses two and three. We could put the teaching like this. If I really believe what the second verse has told me, if I really know that I'm a child of God with all that this means, if I believe and know that I'm destined for eternal glory in the presence of God the Father, if I really believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return again to be manifest, as John puts it, in this world as King of kings and Lord of lords, if I believe he's coming to judge the world and destroy everything that's evil and vile out of this universe as a whole, if I believe that I'm going to be with him in glory, if furthermore I believe that I'm going to see him as he is, if I really believe that I'm going to be like him, that my very body shall be glorified and I shall be faultless and blameless and spend eternity in his holy presence, if I really believe in hope in all of that says john then necessity then of necessity verse three must follow then of necessity verse three must follow if we hope to be changed on that day that is our longing that will be a longing of us here in this life and this point that john is making here in in chapter three one to three is he sets up the next and somewhat difficult section in verses 4 to 10, where we really start to get deep in the weeds on practicing sin and and practicing unrighteousness and practicing righteousness. You need to see that John's argument here really sets that up. So we come back next week and hear 4 to 10. We need to see this, that a longing to be like Christ is the fruit of God's grace and the fruit of that we long to be like him on that day. This is another argument. Against those, for John, this is just another argument against those who fell away from the true Christ and have wandered off into thinking that they can have fellowship with a God of light while living in darkness. Going back to 1 John 1, you saw that, right? God is light, right? God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And if you claim to have fellowship with God who is in the light, you will not walk in the darkness. Fresh angle, same argument. Apostle John 1, false teachers 0, game over. Game over. John wins the day here with this argument. Hope, confidence, abiding, trusting, faith, believing in Christ, looks forward to Christ's coming and being completely changed on that day. It also translates into a desire to be changed on this day. In closing, listen to how how Peter, listen to Peter's words. I have the the passage for you on the screen. Listen to how Peter's words really, really complement John's words well. Though you have not seen him. You see that? John's talking about on a day we will see him, okay? But Peter's talking about right now. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you have not seen him, you love him. John is saying when we see him, he's talking about a hope on that day. Peter's talking about though we don't see him now, a love for him on this day. Though we have not seen him, we love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You see that? Right now we believe in him and we rejoice in him with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. It translates here, obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. You see that? It doesn't say that obtaining the outcome of our longing, obtaining the outcome of our, 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 our pure living, obtaining the outcome of our eager expectation. No, that's fruit. Peter says obtaining the outcome of our faith. Faith connects us to Christ, the salvation of our souls. Therefore, because that's true, because that's true, 
Prepare your minds for action. Being sober-minded. Set your hope. What is that? What is that class? What's hope? Confident expectation. Set your confident expectation fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I want to point this out. Him coming back to rescue us and change us. Look at what he says. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you on that day. You want to know why I say that it's Christ who is our confidence on that day? Because Peter says here that grace is going to be brought to us on that day. Not wages, not earning. If our confidence had anything to do on that day with our work or our performance, Peter would have said something like this. He wouldn't have said hope. He wouldn't have said grace. He would have said what you earned. You earned to have confidence on that day. You earned to stand firm on that day because you did it. Great job. Well done. No, what does he say? Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you on that day. It's going to be a grace for God to come rescue us, to change us. That's his grace. That's his love. That's the fullness of his love in our lives. Set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Christ Jesus. This is what John's talking about. As obedient children, do not be conformed. See how he connects that? See how he connects to the anticipating the return of Christ to a longing for obedience now? Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And that sounds a lot like this. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Do you know what the good news in all of this is? Here's what the good news in all of this is. Those who long for purity now, that is the fruit of God's grace in our lives. That is the fruit of God's good love and grace in our lives. Without his grace for a minute, for a second, you would be on the other end of John's argument. Without God's grace for a minute, you would be on the other end of John's argument. There's no arrogance here. Just gratitude and a desire to continue to abide. You see that? No arrogance. It's gratitude. Thankfulness. Or as Peter says here, a joy, believing in him, a rejoicing with inexpressible glory. No arrogance, just gratitude. The other piece of the good news is this. If you're here and this passage is just exposing you, like you're here and, and, and God by his word through the spirit is just haunting you right now and you're just exposed And your heart is just exposed right now. And truly, truly deep down in your heart, you long and love unrighteousness. And you might say with your lips, you know and trust Christ. You might say with your lips, I can't wait for that day. But you love sin right now. And this word, this passage has come and has exposed you. Exposing the true condition of your heart. And you see there a deep longing for those things that God hates. You You know what the good truth of that is? The good news? You don't have to stay there. You don't have to stay there. You do not have to stay in that darkness. You don't. You don't. You can come out of that darkness, friend. You can come out of that darkness and into the light. Where you confess your sin. Where you confess the condition of your heart. And you run to Christ. And you ask him to change you. And you tell him, I trust in you. I believe in this work, and I don't want this to be me. I want to be like you. 
and you, and you throw yourself at the cross, and you throw yourself at his finished work, and you say, I believe in that. I need that, and I believe in that. You don't have to be a recipient of God's wrath on that day. Okay, that's what John didn't get into there, was for those who don't trust in Christ, Jesus is going to open a can on those people, all right? That means God's wrath. And I don't say that lightly. That's reality. For us who hope in him, we can't wait to see him. For those who don't, it's going to mean destruction and God's wrath on that day. Come out of that darkness, friend. Come into the light. Trust in the one who bore God's wrath for you at the cross so you don't have to bear God's wrath on that day. Trust in the one who bore God's wrath on that day 2,000 years ago at the cross so that you don't have to bear God's wrath on that day when he comes back. You don't have to stay in that darkness. Come out and then join us. Join us who are imperfect, but because of God's grace in our lives, he's made our hearts new and we long to be like him and this is the road and journey and struggle that we are on. I want to invite Jonathan to come up for a final song. And with that, let's stand. I'm going to read the last portion here of Revelation. Hear the words that John writes, the same John from 1 John. Hear the words that John writes to close out the book of Revelation. Jesus says this, Behold, I'm coming soon. It's coming soon. I'm going to appear, and you're going to see me as I am. Bringing my recompense with me. There's that wrath. To repay everyone for what he has done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers, the sexually immoral and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. And I say that to you if you're in the darkness, come. Just come. Come to Christ. Come to God. Trust in him. And take from this water without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen.